Heavenly Father, please open our eyes that we may see the truth you wish to show us today. Help us to understand your words so that it may be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In Christ's name, amen. The reading this morning is going to be familiar. Uh, It is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Sarah. This is, uh, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. Those of you who've been coming week after week are tired of hearing me say that Advent is not Christmas. It's the season that leads up to Christmas. It's the build-up uh, to Christmas. You know how the, it's kind of like kids, you know, kid, Christmas gets better for a kid the more they anticipate and the more they long for it and the more they see the gifts that they just can't open yet and that makes the payoff and the relief so, so good. Um, Advent is an important season in a similar way, and I don't mean to make light of it, but actually it's an important season for us to express our longing, much like the Jews of Jesus' day, for God to intervene in our broken world and to shine a light into our dark world. Now, Christmas is the celebration, of course, that God has broken into the darkness. We live on the far side of Christmas, And so we know God has broken into the darkness to start setting everything right again. And we're going to start that celebration this afternoon at 4.30. I hope you'll join us. It's going to be a great service. But during Advent, we meditate on four themes. There are four kind of traditional themes. They are in order hope, peace, joy, and love. Now, those are really important themes, but they're also themes that are so commonplace that we kind of throw them around. You see them on Hallmark cards, no disrespect to Hallmark, and, and the more we throw them around, the more they kind of lose their meaning. 
So it's actually important to remind ourselves, what do those themes actually mean? And this week's theme is love. Love is maybe the, in some ways, the way we use it in culture, the squishiest of those words. What does love actually mean? All you need is love. Well, what do you mean by that? Probably the best definition of love that I've ever heard, this is so helpful for me, is that to love somebody is simply to will the good of another. To will the good of another. And there's more in that than we could even unpack in one morning. But fundamentally, at the very least, that means that love means you're acting in someone else's best interest. To love somebody is to act in their best interest. Now, it almost always implies some form of self-sacrifice. And so as we begin this morning, it's not hard to see, even as we define love as simply as acting in somebody's, somebody else's best interest, that this is a fitting theme leading up to Christmas. Because what is Christmas but the celebration that God has acted in our best interest? He loved us. He loves us, present tense. He acted in our best interest by becoming human. That's what Christmas is all about. By becoming flesh. We used to have a member of our church who said, God put skin on. That's a good image. That God put skin on and moved into the neighborhood, as one pastor paraphrases it, which involved a profound self-sacrifice. The beauty of Advent is that we get to celebrate that God is love. Now this year, as we consider the four themes of Advent, we're overlaying those over four titles given to the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9. A Messiah is just the person that God is going to send to make our broken world whole again. And so we've been asking, what does it mean that this Messiah is each of these four things? One, this is a very famous verse. It's in Handel's Messiah. You hear it all over. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And each of those titles overlays nicely, as it turns out, over the four themes of Advent. And so we've seen over the past three weeks that God is a wonderful counselor. That means he's wise. That means he has authority. We learned that the Hebrew word for counselor doesn't just mean kind of like somebody giving you advice that you can take it or leave it. It's, it's actually, the word counselor really is almost synonymous with the word king. So it's somebody who's powerful and can actually get things done. That God is a God who doesn't just sit on the sidelines and offer some take it or leave it advice, but he gets things done and did so through his son Jesus. We saw that he's a mighty God. This is what we reflected on last week when we saw that he's powerful and that the word mighty doesn't just mean that he's strong or muscular, but it actually is the same word as the Hebrew word for a warrior. We reflected on the fact that God is, as he describes himself in Isaiah 9, a warrior God. Which isn't so much that a lot of us, when we live in the modern West and things are frankly going pretty well for us, we lead comfortable lives, that kind of that kind of skims off. But for somebody who is severely oppressed or vulnerable, that's exceedingly good news. That God stands for justice and righteousness. We've seen that he's a prince of peace. Prince is a royal title. And we've seen that peace doesn't just mean the absence of conflict or the absence of war. It's the presence of something, namely, that all will be as all should be. 
Peace is when everything is right in the world. And God, through Jesus, is coming to bring peace to the world. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. We're taking them out of order. This morning, we're considering what does it mean that God is an everlasting father? That sounds different than the other three. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Those are strong titles. They're powerful titles. They convey senses of authority. But everlasting father has a very different tenor than those other three. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. It's unusual in this list of three. It's actually an unusual title in the Old Testament. Old Testament authors very seldomly describe God as father. It's an unusual image if you're an ancient first century Jew. And this is part of why Jesus ruffled so many feathers when he started calling God Father and telling us to do the same. Just one example. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Jesus says, when, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer later today. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. And a lot of you know this, that Jesus didn't speak English. He actually didn't speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. And the word for Father in Aramaic is Abba. Abba is one of the simplest words for us to make with our mouth. You can hear, you can hear like a, an 18-month-old just learning to vocalize different syllables. Abba, Abba, Abba. You can hear it, right? It actually turns out that that's, that's one of the first words that children across the world, and especially in Old Testament times, made. Abba. The first word they learn is Abba. And Abba literally means Daddy. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, our father, you know, we think our father who art in heaven. No, Jesus says, daddy. I dare you to say daddy when we pray the Lord's prayer at the end of the service. I dare you. Say it out loud and see if you don't feel uncomfortable. (laughs) You will. I promise you will. It's weird. It's even weird for us to refer to God as daddy. And yet he invites us to refer to him that intimately. As weird as you feel now, it was even weirder for a first century Jew, which is why in the Old Testament, we almost never see God referred to as father, except in Isaiah. There were a few other scatters, a couple in the Psalms and a couple here and there, and then a few in Isaiah. Isaiah has the most references, and there really are only a handful in Isaiah. But we can actually learn an awful lot from them. So we're going to stay parked in the book of Isaiah this morning and look at what does Isaiah teach us about God as our father. The other two main instances where God refers to himself as father in the book of Isaiah come at the very end of the book. Isaiah chapters 63 and 64. In Isaiah 63, specifically two verses, 15 and 16, we're reminded that fathers, a good father is tender and compassionate. And God is a tender and compassionate father. And then in the very next chapter, Isaiah 64, it's like the flip side of the coin, we're reminded that a good father is also authoritative. He sets boundaries for his children. And God, who is a good father, is authoritative and sets boundaries for his children. Those can seem like two different opposite ideas. It's kind of like having two sides of a coin. 
You know, you have two sides of any coin. Take a quarter or take a nickel. There are two sides. There's the head side and the tail side, and you can only see one side at a time, but they're both there. A good father is both tender and compassionate and authoritative. And a lot of times you see one side or the other expressed in any given moment, but they are both there. And, and a good father, a good father must be both. So let's spend some time this morning thinking about each of those traits. We'll start with tenderness and compassion. Because Isaiah teaches us and God teaches us that he's a tender and compassionate father. Even just saying that can be a little bit unsettling for some of us because some of us are used to thinking about God as a rather difficult to please father. You know, the dad who's like just waiting for you to get home with your report card. And you're going to stand there rigidly and awkwardly while he scans your grades. We think that God's default mode is evaluation. He's just evaluating us. He's always evaluating us to make sure that we measure up. If you, and this is this maybe a lot of us, if you are the type who is genuinely anxious that you don't measure up to God's standard, if you're the type who's genuinely afraid that God is angry at you, hear God's words as he tells you, I am a tender and compassionate father. I mentioned this earlier in the service, and I'll say it again. In the mid, uh, I don't remember where it is, Exodus like 34-ish, God introduces himself for the first time to his people, and here's how he introduces himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, but the Lord there is in all caps. That's God giving us his first name, saying, you're on a first name basis with me, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in forever loving kindness. If you're the type who's afraid that God is angry at you, hear this loud and clear. God is a tender and compassionate father. And he expresses his love through his gentleness, through his tenderness, through his compassion. Let's think about the definition of love again. We're going to return to that. To love is to will the good of another or to act in somebody else's best interest. Do you want to know the fastest way to crush a child's spirit? I'm learning this because I have two at home right now. Is to criticize, criticize, criticize. And by the grace of God, children are resilient. Amen? Because I find myself being drawn into a spirit that just criticizes, criticizes, criticizes. If your default tone with your kids is criticism, you will suffocate them. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, keys in on this much later in the Bible in the New Testament in Colossians 3. This command appears twice in the New Testament, and here's how he puts it in Colossians 3. Paul warns fathers, fathers specifically, because he knows that for men this tends to be uh, more of, of our sin nature and our pattern. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children, lest they lose heart. There's another translation I like even better. It says, fathers, do not embitter your children. 
I think they made up the word embitter for that verse, and it's so good. Fathers, do not embitter your children lest they lose heart. Now, this does not mean that a good father does not correct his children. Far from it, and we're going to cover that in just a minute. But even in his correction, a good father demonstrates tenderness and compassion. Several years ago, uh, a pastor named Dane Ortland published a small book. A number of you have read it. It's called Gentle and Lowly. Highly recommend it. In fact, we've got extra copies. I've got extra copies, so if you haven't read it and this feels like something you want to, let me know after the service and I'll get you one. And he uses this illustration in the book. He says, when a, when a tender and compassionate father sees his kid hurting, like really hurting, not just like, oh, I fell and I looked around and realized somebody saw me, so I'm starting to cry for the sympathy and the attention. And the, no, like when, when a good father sees his kid genuinely hurting on the ground, what does he do? He immediately runs to his kid. A child's brokenness does not make a father It does not push a father away. It draws a father in. Our brokenness, our hurt, even our, listen carefully, even our sin does not push God away. It draws God closer. And if that doesn't sound right to you, that Pastor Chris would say that our sin draws God closer, I would ask you, what is Jesus except God who drew closer to us in our sin to forgive our sin? Some of you need to hear this morning that God is a tender and compassionate Father. He is tender and and compassionate. There's another side to the coin. The reverse side to the coin, to the coin. Because like this for my Illinois, my Midwesterners here today. (laughs) Because like a good father, God is also a God of authority. This is Isaiah 64, and listen to how he puts it in Isaiah 64. It says this, Yet you, O Lord, are our father, There's the word father. You are our father. And then he expands on it and says, we are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. So, class, pop quiz. What does a potter do with a lump of clay? Answer, whatever he wants. If if the potter decides that he's making a mug, or he's making a fruit bowl, or he's making some little knickknack you can put on your kitchen windowsill. Like it just, it, it's just the potter just gets to decide. No lump of clay gets to talk back to the potter and say, I demand that you make me into a coffee mug. Right? It's silly. The potter has authority over the clay. And just as there are some of us this morning who need to hear that God is tender and compassionate, there are also some of us here this morning who need to hear that God is an authoritative father, like a potter with a lump of clay. Because some of us, if we're being honest, are like a lump of clay making demands of the potter. Or, to bring the image home a little bit, let's change the metaphor 
Have you ever seen, you ever been out, maybe you saw it just this week, especially with Christmas coming up. You ever been out and you've seen like a 12-year-old kid barking orders at their dad? You ever seen that? And the dad's just kind of sitting there listening and taking it. And It's a really awkward, like it's an uncomfortable situation when you see that, right? Because you know, especially if you're a good New Englander and like privacy, and so you don't get involved in that, right? <laughs> but part of you wants to, and part of you wants to go up to that kid and say, you need to respect your father. That is not acceptable behavior. And part of you wants to go up to the dad and say, you need to discipline your child. <laughs> right? <laughs> At the risk of stepping on some toes here, how many of us are the 12-year-old barking orders at dad? It's my money, dad. I get to choose what I do with it. It's my body, dad. I get to choose what I do with it. It's my life, dad. I get to choose what I do with it. How much authority does God really have in your life and in my life? Or to ask differently and maybe even more directly, where have you refused to recognize God's authority in your life? It's my fill in the blank. I get to decide what I do with it. Being a Christian, let's be clear about this, being a Christian, following God, is not like going to a buffet and you get to just pick and choose what looks good to you and then pass on the rest. It's more like going to a restaurant. I've never actually done this, but I would love to. I've seen TV shows about it. It's more like going to the restaurant where they're serving the chef's choice meal. This is one of those restaurants I can't really afford to go to. And it's chef's choice. And you just go and you get whatever the chef sends out. You don't even know what he's going to send out or she's going to send out. And, and the chef, she might send out something that you really did not expect. And actually, she might send out something that you're pretty sure you're not going to like. But if you go to a really good restaurant with a really good chef, and she sends out something that you're sure you're, gonna, you're not going to like because you don't eat mushrooms, you know it's probably going to happen. You're probably going to bite into it anyway, and it will be sublime because she's an expert chef. She knows exactly what she's doing. Remember what it means to love somebody, to will the good of another, to act in somebody else's best interest? Just as children need boundaries for their good, for their good, right parents? You and I need boundaries for our good. And when God exercises his authority and calls us to joyful obedience, it's for our good. It's so that you and I might actually flourish because we flourish within God's boundaries. And frankly, we find ourselves wasting away outside of his boundaries. A good father demonstrates both tenderness and compassion and authority. Do you see? You have to have both. You have to have both. 
In fact, if you have one without the other, you're at best out of balance, at worst you're incomplete. If you have authority without gentleness, then that's not actually authority, that's authoritarianism. Right? This is the dad around whom you're just walking on eggshells all the time, just trying not to make him mad. This is the dad that you fear in the most negative sense of the word. Just wait till your father gets home. A good father must also have tenderness and compassion. But a father who has tenderness and compassion and yet no authority is what? Passive? Anemic? The, the sitcom dad, you know, the, the dad in all the old sitcoms? The dad that, if we're being honest, like nobody really respects. Because love is acting in someone else's best interest. And children need boundaries. And a, fa- a father who does not lovingly, gently, yes, but provide boundaries for his children and demonstrate his authority in that sense is actually acting in an unloving way towards his children. He thinks he's being loving. He thinks he's being the cool dad or you know whatever. He thinks. But actually, by not giving them the boundaries and the expectations they need, he's not loving them. Gentleness and authority. You have to have both. And God is our everlasting Father, filled with gentleness, with tenderness, with compassion, and with authority, all of it for our good. For our good, because He is a good Father. Now, I know that some of us still. Like one sermon, you know, 20 minutes in is not going to resolve everything. And some of us still really struggle with the image of God as a father. And that's probably because our human fathers in some way did not reflect the heart of God, our father. I would wager it might be because they demonstrated tenderness or compassion or authority, one side or the other, but not both. And this is really tragic. And this is just one of those ways things are because as we, the way we know our human fathers, our earthly fathers, more than we realize or appreciate most of the time will forge how we understand and know God, our heavenly father. So if your earthly father demonstrated a lot of authority but not a lot of compassion, you are likely to see God as a father who demonstrates a lot of authority but not a lot of compassion. If your earthly father is a father who is angry a lot, you are very likely to see God as a God who is angry a lot. On the other hand, if your earthly father demonstrated a lot of tenderness and compassion but did not practice much authority, then you're going to have a really hard time when, God, when you hear that God does call you to joyful obedience. To a large extent, I mean, this is just inevitable, how we see our human father is will. It's not completely determinative, but it's close. It will forge how we see God, our father. And let me just add this to those of us in this room who are fathers. This is and this should be a sobering reminder that how our kids experience us will determine to a large extent the way they experience God. It's sobering, isn't it? 
because it helps you to see that like even how you walk in the door after a long day of work is an act of discipleship, an act of shaping your child's understanding of God the Father. Now, I don't want this to be a complete downer, and the reality is none of us is a perfect father. And the good news is that God, our Heavenly Father, is. And then even in our weakness and our shortcomings, somehow... (laughs) God is still tender and compassionate towards our children, even in ways that we aren't. That God is still good to them. God is a good father. He's a good father. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He doesn't just call God Father, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. He is everlasting Let's reflect on that just a little bit as we start to tie this up. That God never ends. I heard it said um, a couple years ago, shortly after my dad died, somebody said, this was like helpful in one of those really weird ways. He said, you know, sooner or later we all end up as orphans. Death, especially the death of a parent, is a stark reminder to us that all is not yet as it should be. All is not yet as it should be. It will be, but it is not yet. And Jamie and I were talking about this in an oblique way just earlier this week. Both both of our fathers have died, and we were just talking and reflecting about how much fun both of our dads would have had in this season of life with their grandkids at these ages, and it just would would have been fun. And we were laughing kind of through our tears It's just a sharp reminder of the cruelty of death, and especially those of you who've lost a parent and a father know this. There is a cruelty that as much as we love them, our earthly fathers are not everlasting. But he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Father. God never leaves us. He never abandons us. He never walks out the door and doesn't come home. God never dies. We never lose him. He is our everlasting Father. What a fitting title to think about as we move this afternoon and this evening towards celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ and as we think about love this fourth week of Advent. We're just about to move from the Advent season to the Christmas season. I know I've harped a lot on how Advent isn't Christmas. Let me just share with you one nugget. I don't even totally know what to make of this. I find it attractive, and yet I'm not sure how to process. But I learned last year, just last year, that in ancient times, Advent, even though it's the season leading up to Christmas, was thematically not all that much about looking ahead to Christmas. It was much more about looking ahead to Jesus' second coming. Actually, I also learned this that the four original themes of Advent were, what were they? They were judgment, death, hell, and one other one. I don't remember that. Aren't you glad that I didn't pick those themes for this sermon series? (laughs) 
Advent in ancient times was about looking ahead to Jesus' second coming. And the more we think about this, the more it starts to make sense because there's so much overlap between the ancient Jews looking forward to the Messiah's first coming and our looking forward to Jesus' second coming. Maybe that'll be the sermon series next year. Now, it's not wrong. It's not wrong, hear me closely, to look forward to Jesus' birth, to look forward to Christmas. To look, that's a good celebration, and we look forward to that, and rightly so. But if you stop there, you're getting an incomplete story. The story of God does not end with, with you know, cute little six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus in a manger. If you stop there, you're missing the even better part of the story. It, it would be like watching, if you're watching Forrest Gump and you cut it off before he realizes, you cut it off when he's still sitting on the park bench, right? Before he realizes that Jenny lives like a few blocks away. And Jesus is coming. Here's the good news. This, this is the best news of Advent, that Jesus not only has come, but Jesus the Christ is coming again. And he will finish what he began. He will make all things new. And when he does, we will know in full our heavenly father. Perfectly, everlasting, full of gentleness and authority. And we will see him not through a mirror dimly, but face to face. And we will know perfect hope and perfect peace and perfect joy and perfect love. All because in his compassion, in his compassion, he became like us. I want to finish this way. I want to read for you Philippians 2. This is one of the earliest Christian hymns. It might be the earliest Christian hymn that we have. We know that Christians somewhere around 70 to 80 AD were probably singing this hymn about Jesus. Listen for both God's tenderness and compassion and his authority. Listen for the good news of Jesus Christ in this. Jesus was in very nature God, and yet he did not consider equality with God to be something, uh, equality with God something to be taken advantage of. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus the Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.